Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Our guest this week is dancer and performer Lena Wolf. Before taking the plunge as a full-time performing artist, Lena was an optical engineer on the display team for the original Microsoft HoloLens, the first consumer-grade augmented reality device. She has collaborated with a Facebook research team on avatar creation and worked with a creative technologist on immersive proposals. Welcome, Lena. Hello. Thank you, Louisa, for having me. My pleasure. I was so excited when I saw your Facebook post. You shared an article from Playbill about the potentials of augmented reality and virtual reality. And when I saw that you had expertise in this field, I got very excited. Yay. Yeah, it's something that I've been excited about for many, many years, even before I knew what augmented reality was. So I guess I can give a little background about my experience with augmented reality. If we go all the way back to my days of college, when I was studying both optical sciences and engineering and dance, I wanted to see where the two of them could intersect. How do we as performing artists allow technology to enhance our performance? Do we, how do we make it more accessible instead of having it replace what we do? How do we supplement what we do? Because performing arts is so tangible that putting it on film doesn't do the same thing as having an in-person or an immersive experience. So once I discovered that this thing called entertainment technology existed, um, I became obsessed with the Xbox Connect and managed to get a summer internship working on that. If anyone isn't familiar with the Xbox Connect, it is a peripheral device that is compatible with the Xbox and you can use it to play games without any sort of remote control. Sort of like the Wii, but without a remote control. So you actually use your body as the controller. It's very interesting. And especially as a dancer, the physiology and the um, practical applications of something that can do markerless body tracking was incredibly interesting to me. Started running down the especially path. Especially at of, home. That's super cool. Absolutely. Especially at home. So my mind started thinking, well, how can we as performing artists, as dancers, start to utilize this technology? Other other industries had taken it towards physical therapy or using it for Alzheimer's patients, people to actually interact physically with physical movement instead of just a two-dimensional screen. It's actually taking a three-dimensional representation of your body. Really cool stuff. So I wanted to see more how I could adapt this. Then fast forward a few more years and I'm working at Microsoft on the new Connect. Very excited about that and had an opportunity to join a an undisclosed secret project that Microsoft was developing within the game design and game console um, hardware team. I got the job and was immediately thrust into this world of augmented reality. So just a quick, quick overview of the difference between augmented reality, virtual reality, and reality reality. So reality is the world yes, that we... Yes, please. But b- before you go on, <laughs> before you go on, I want to I ask, I, I can mode. see you're very... Yes, I love it. It's very... You're clearly very passionate about it and very knowledgeable, which I'm thrilled about. Going back, 
How did you discover this world? Well, I saw a flyer in the College of Optical Sciences that said, we want a full-time Connect hardware engineer. And I had looked at that and said, whoa, that's different. All of the other engineering positions available were for um, mostly defense contractors or manufacturing, something I wasn't interested in doing. I just personally don't want to work on defense and I wanted to work on something that entertained people. I am a performer. I'm an entertainer. Uh, so I wanted, again, to find entertainment optics and ran into a few naysayers here and there. So I brought that piece of paper up to my lab that I was working in and I said, hey, PhD students, does anybody know anything about this? Because the recruiters at Microsoft had no idea. Because Microsoft is pre predominantly a software company and the recruiters coming to universities are looking for software engineers, not for that random little unicorn, me, the optical engineer. So I got in the back door because the lab that I worked in had a former PhD student who was now working on that team. He managed to connect me with the right people internally. And then from there, it was all on me. It was all, why do you want to do this? Well, I want to work in entertainment optics. I'm intrigued by the ability to markerlessly map the human body. What can I do as a dancer? And it was a wonderful opportunity. So I got to go explore that more. Um, I actually turned down a job at NASA in order to go work at Microsoft. <laughs> I'm so happy I get to casually say that. That is amazing. Where were you at school? I was at the University of Arizona um, in the College that of Optical sense, Sciences. That makes sense. connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So University of Arizona College of Optical Sciences is one of two undergraduate universities that offer a degree in optical sciences. The other is the University of Rochester. So we have this very, very extreme nerd rivalry. You would never know if you're into sports, but the nerds, we get it. But University of Arizona is in the heart of Optics Valley, Hubble Space Telescope, all of these large, giant mirrors are manufactured in Tucson. The night sky is very clear and there's a, a less disturbance. So it's very easy for astronomy um, and astronomical observations. So then out of that, the College of Optical Sciences grew to be one of the most prestigious institutions in the world. It's the Harvard of Optical Sciences, the Yale, the whatever you want to think about it as. So it's a very prestigious program and only about 30 people per year graduate from their program. So were you studying dance while you were doing your optical degree? Yes, I did a double I did a double degree. So a double degree and a math minor. Almost did a math major, but I just couldn't swing it. <laughs> so I can't imagine that in in the whole world, yet alone the United States, that there are many science uh, optical engineers who are also professional dancers. No, I know of one other person and he followed in my footsteps. He actually danced at Carolina Ballet and then is wow. an artist in residence at the University of Arizona and also pursuing his degree in optical sciences and was connected with me because I was the only one. It's not uncommon for dancers to have other studies and other focuses. A lot of my peers did business or one is a, um, a doctor. <laughs> so pre-med, business, communications, wow. you name it, the dancers did it. I was the only one studying optics and photonics though. 
Okay, so you were at university, you saw a flyer on the wall Mm -hmm. and said, oh, that sounds interesting. You had a connection through your PhD program. The, um, not my PhD program. I, w- I only have an undergraduate degree. I, <laughs> I wish I had a PhD, but I don't yet. I was working with a PhD candidate who happened to, after graduation, move there. So I was right. working in the um, polarization lab at the University of Arizona and had a connection through a former um, research student who now worked at Microsoft. That's fascinating. And okay, so... I know you wanted to tell us, can you give us a breakdown? What is, what is AR? What is VR? Yes. Yes. So fast forward to Lena knows nothing about the cloud and is working for a huge software company called Microsoft on augmented reality. (laughs) Well, what is augmented reality? Let's take a look at reality that we live in as humans, the perception we have. It's things that you can three-dimensionally physically touch, see, feel. It's the world that we open our eyes every day to see. Then you have the extreme Mm -hmm. occlusion. You have virtual reality where you put on um, something like the Oculus Rift and you are completely isolated and occluded. A full headset, you are occluded in a new world. You are in a completely different virtual world. You are completely disconnected visually from your worldly surroundings. Now, whether or not you're stuck in a a chair that's giving you haptic feedback, so something that rocks back and forth, vibrates, et cetera, depending on where you're stepping, that's a completely different experience, heightens the ability of being transported in a virtual world. Now, the -hmm. reason I like augmented reality is because it's an overlap of those two areas. Augmented reality is digitally placing objects in the real world. Prime examples of this are any of your Snapchat or Instagram filters, anything that goes on your face. It's all just image recognition and overlaying digital content onto reality. Pokemon Go is another really big one because you're using geolocation and augmented reality to see your characters in these locations. Um, So really anything that has a digital overlay projection or um, stereoscopic image immersed in reality, that's augmented reality. Hence the term augmented reality instead of virtual reality or real reality. (laughs) Okay. And you incorporated some of this work, some of the augmented reality work into your dance thesis? Not, Not quite because the augmented reality was not something that was readily available at the time. Um, My dance thesis Mm -hmm. was exploring how dance and optical technologies could become interrelated and rely on each other. Uh, So it's something that I'm actually curious about doing now, especially in the current global climate of how can both artists and technologists or artists and scientists utilize each other to push both areas forward. So what I did was I interviewed a number of my peers and optics professors with, hey, what types of technologies are you working on and what do you see coming up in the next five to 10 years? I then took that that bit of data, um, these proposals, these existing technologies that will be expanded, something like holograms or haptic feedback or, or uh, body tracking, things that were existing, and then brought them to peers and professors in the dance, the school of dance, and ask them how they would utilize these technologies either 
as a performance tool, as a creation tool, as a modeling tool, as a teaching tool, or even as an archival tool. So all of these things became very, very exciting for the, um, the dancers to start experimenting with because it's out of the box and out of the realm of what an optical scientist might think of. Um, and also just finding different creative ways to think about something. So then I was able to bring those ideas back full circle. So it's almost like kneading the dough back and forth of take this yeah. and give it to somebody else, let them change it, bring it back, and then see how it influences the other, the engineers. So that was a very, very fun exploration. And I mostly looked at um, new and emerging technology, some that was coming out of Japan. Uh, Brigham Young University has some holograms. The University of Arizona had an updatable holographic display. And then the Xbox Connect, because it's something that is accessible. And accessibility is a big issue with a lot of technology as we are learning in this world right now. So how did audiences experience your dance piece? I gave a lecture um, in my auditorium um, in the School of Dance, and they experienced it via just some PowerPoints that I put together. And then also were able to dance with the Kinect and see the skeletal tracking because I had the development kit up and available. And again, at the time, my knowledge was very, very limited, but very readily explorable, something that I was ready to, to dive into at any moment. And they were able to come and play afterwards and see their bodies being tracked by this device. And things that were trivial to me, things that I had experienced were things that someone else never has. So my thought of, oh, nobody's going to be excited about this. Nobody's going to be impressed by this. It was, wow, I've never seen this before. This is really, really cool. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. And then fast forward now, eight years later, we have so much more technology. I've now shipped a product that is working with exactly what I want to be doing. And I'm now on the other end of how do I make this accessible and produce work with um, augmented reality, with virtual reality, without replacing live performance. Um, so enhancing or supplementing and making the accessibility greater for people who might not be able to travel um, or come to New York to see live theater. So what do you see as the next iteration of all this? Is it that someone in Tucson, for example, could put on a headset and watch a show in New York City? Yes, exactly. Um, so a few thoughts that I have is, have you ever wanted to experience like a tabletop version of the Nutcracker? Um, you put on your augmented reality headset and then in front of you, the snow scene starts falling or do you want to see it from the dancer's perspective? All of a sudden it gets bigger and now you're on stage and you're twirling right next to a snowflake. Um, so getting to see it from all different angles and experiencing it from a different perspective. Instead of being in a proscenium theater as an audience member, you're actually on stage as the dancers are moving around you. You can feel that swirling. Like even just imagining it in my own mind, you feel the snow swirling around you. I have goosebumps yeah. thinking about that <laughs> idea. It's like the, the th I don't know if you've seen the 360 degree videos that have mm -hmm. become popular in the last couple of years. Yeah. 
that film a Broadway show from the stage and from the audience, but you get a 360 perspective. Yes, exactly. And so the the thing about those 360 degree cameras is that they're still made to be represented on a two-dimensional screen. So instead mm-hmm. of being able to, to view it as if you are in the real world, you're still viewing it on a two-dimensional screen. You're still viewing it as if you're watching a film instead of watching live theater. And there is there are some... Um, moral and artistic dilemmas that I've, I've had conversations with many, many friends about. Um, I have another, I have a few collaborators that I've been working with over the years, just discussing this, another dancer who, um, was on the Phantom of the Opera national tour. Um, my friend who dances with city ballet, other, uh, the, the researchers at Carnegie Mellon university with Facebook, people have an interest in this, but theater is so Um, it's so stuck in, this is how we do things and Mm -hmm. this is how it's always been done. So how do we, Mm -hmm. how do we open their mind? How do we open our minds to, this isn't going to break the industry. It's going to enhance it. It's going to allow us to adapt. Um, I can't remember what the question was that you started with. (laughs) (laughs) Neither can I. (laughs) So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the industry resistance to, to changing the status quo. Mm-hmm. My dream, especially with filmed live musicals, is that one day, you know, a kid growing up in Sydney, Australia, as I did, could put on a headset and experience a Broadway show. And vice versa, that someone in Tucson, Arizona could experience a show by a company, by the Sydney Theatre Company. Yes. How far away are we from that being a reality? Well, we are there, but also not at all. So let me explain what I mean by that. You and I right now are talking via Zoom from two very different locations. I got off the mm-hmm. phone with a friend in Finland. My best friend lives in Singapore. I took class for the last few months from my living room on Zoom with people across the country and even across the world. So it is there. Mm-hmm. The desire to connect globally is there. The accessibility is why it's not possible. So a lot of these devices, the augmented reality devices, virtual reality devices are exclusionary by price point. They are expensive. The HoloLens was retailing at about three grand when it first launched. It's wow. meant, and this is just the equipment to like put on a headset. It's basically a personal computer. So if you were to take your computer and put it on your head, that's why the price <laughs> is so high. It's not a peripheral device. There are other devices that you can plug into your phone, which if you sum total all of them together, you'll get out to be about $3,000. So the idea behind it was to replace personal computing with an augmented reality device. You have better posture when you're sitting with this thing on your head instead of having to look at the camera that's God knows where. Um, And you also can have eye contact. (laughs) You can have real eye contact with people instead of looking at, if I want to have eye contact with you, I have to look at the screen, but really I have to look at the camera, which means I'm not looking at you. The way that the HoloLens works is it has the the screen, a see-through screen essentially in front of your face. So you and I will be looking at each other. The camera is so close that you can't tell that we're looking far. We're not looking directly 
in each other's eyes. So it brings that element of personal intimacy back. Um, and that's something that wow. Zoom is missing. So I did work with another creative technologist named Anna Henson on a proposal of um, how to use the new Azure Connect to create virtual intimacy between two remote spaces. Um, so we're still, we still have that proposal in our back pocket, but it's something that we were very, very interested in exploring of how do we physically allow um, visual and physical connection while being in two separate locations. And that, that brings it back to what some of the discussions that I've had of why is theater resistant to doing this? Because it's not the same. I can watch, I can watch Hamilton on my television. It's two dimensional. You don't have the audience roaring, breathing, sighing, crying with you. You don't have that human energy. And so the idea of allowing that to permeate through technology is a very, very, very difficult thing. And we see that daily with how much social media has caused a divide among people and how much the removal of a face-to-face -face conversation can affect conversation and attitude and, and, and everything beyond that. So video makes it better. So to get back to your question of, is this, is this possible and how far away do I see it being? It's going to, it is possible and the desire is there. People are already doing it. We are already connecting on this level. Um, the reason it has not yet is because we have to get the, the big game players on board, the people who have the pockets, the people who have the um, expendable resources to do this, which is why that Playbill article both excited and angered me because there are so many of us who've been trying for years to say, hey, this is a viable option, but then getting nothing from the top level because if it ain't broke, don't fix it was the motto up there. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's the same with just filming shows. There was this huge belief before the pandemic industry-wide at the at the professional level at the and the particularly the Broadway level that we cannot film theater that it's not the same that it's not really theater if you're filming it and now with the pandemic those people are seeing the demand for filmed live theater content now everyone's like oh i wish we'd filmed everything because we'd have content to put out and we could potentially make money from it so now i'm curious when we put VR or AR into this, where the resistance is, does it mean that people will stop coming to live theater if they can experience it at home with a headset? I, I don't think it will, but I'm curious if that is a um, part of the resistance. That's, that is definitely a concern. So most, many of the people that I've talked with are performers like myself. Um, and some are more theater purists, um, like my friend who dances with the ballet, and she understands that, yes, things change, but also you can't replicate it. Her thought process is you can't replicate it, you can't replicate it, you can't replicate it. And other, other friends, and myself included, well, no, we're not trying to replicate it. We're just trying to enhance it and make it more accessible. And that accessibility is, I think, what's now driving it accessibility and monetization um, because money money is king money drives everything so the accessibility of theater 
is incredibly important. And think about not only during the pandemic, but even before this, if people in, in more rural counties or, or parts of the country could travel to New York City via a, a headset. So if we have uh, small locations that are even show hosts that own the equipment, so you go like a movie theater, you go to this virtual viewing of Hamilton, and it's a live theatrical debut. So there are cameras that can stereoscopic capture events, and it can even be uh, live streamed. So there's there's so many possibilities for it. If you have one of these stereoscopic cameras in the back of the theater or in the middle of the audience so that the person sitting in it is actually like, wow, my seat is row F seat 12. And that seat is where my, my VR headset camera is living. And that is then being streamed yes. live to the person sitting in Kansas. So they are at the, the Kansas VR viewing party and uh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and, but actually their avatar, the camera is sitting, it sounds kind of silly thinking about it, but the camera could be sitting in F12 and they are getting to sit in F12. You look to your right person wow. is next to you. Look to your left person is next to you. You are on, you see the screen right there. Now that, that is going to be a large investment for theatrical companies and producers, and also an investment of small companies that would be streaming these things. So you could have eight to 12 F12s sitting in one seat. You have somebody in Oregon, you have somebody in Kansas, Tennessee, Louisiana, or even upstate New York, all sitting in that same seat, but all experiencing something. So you could even multiply how much money you're making. You sell the seat 12 times. So it's, it's, it's a really wow. interesting thought. Uh, it's a really interesting thing to think about. And then you have a live performance so you can mix media. It's a mixed audience. You have a, a live audience and you have a virtual audience all at the same time. And instead of only having one person in the seat, you can have 12 people in the seat. It's interesting. And it is something that could make money. And I just don't think that at this point, uh, theatrical producers cared enough because they still are seeing that silver lining in their pocket. They've still got the money coming in because tickets to Hamilton cost $500. So what it could do is drive down individual cost of tickets, but drive up profit margin for larger theatrical venues. Bam. If say, okay, we've got, we've got our, our, mag, our virtual seat F12. Could, would it be possible that yes, there's a camera in F12 that's that's looking? How does Joe in Kansas and Mary in London and Susie in Sydney? How if if they're all looking in different places at the same time? How does that work? It would it would have to do some. Uh, there would be some tech magic that would have to happen there. So this uh -huh. is something that I've not quite thought out logistically yet or from a system standpoint, <laughs> but it's a possibility where if you have a wide angle camera, they, Mary could be looking over here and Joe could be looking over here, but the camera is still capturing all of it. It's just that the field of view of the device yeah. that they're viewing it on is going to be smaller. So they'll have to move around to see the full field of capture. And would it be possible, like, so you mentioned Hamilton, they had like shots from the top of the stage and from the back of the stage and mm -hmm. all different uh, vantage points around the, the theater. Would it be possible with VR 
like a life from Lincoln Center kind of sh- yes. uh, pro shot where you have all these different angles. Could the person sitting at home in virtual seat F12, mm-hmm. would they be able to access any of those if there's a camera, angles? If there's a camera, there's an angle. So depending on how the production company sees it fit to share backstage magic, then add that as a tier of your experience where you get to have a virtual drink uh, in the, the dressing room after the show with one of the, the principals. You get to be, um, you get to sit on a, you get to see vantage point from one of the stage managers. You get to, um, yeah, sit next to a stage manager and call a show. You get, yeah. If the, if the stage manager so has a headset cool. on, they can also share live what they are viewing. So it would have to be non-intrusive. And then also the, the, uh, just all the, the rights management and, um, negotiations that would have to take place for that, I think is a, is a big hurdle, but the ideas mm-hmm. and the possibilities are all there. Um, so increase the tier of payment, or if you want to have a school field trip to go backstage, if it's a theater group and they want to see, Hey, we want to see how a stage manager works or what does a dresser do? Or what does a, what does a, a hair and makeup artist do in the back? Um, they could very well see that again, it would depend on the production and how much the production is yeah. comfortable with sharing all of this information to a virtual audience. But yeah, it's possible. It would be very possible to, at the click of a button or in the case of a HoloLens, the flick of a hand, change scenery. And you just get up and you walk over to a different vantage point, click, boom, you're now backstage instead of in the audience. There are a lot of uh, logistical things that would have to be done and probably not live, but pre-recorded content, especially if they wanted to have special features. So like an extended version extended DVD mm. and extended version where you could see um, the director's cut. You could see everything that happens in the background, how a dress rehearsal runs where you're actually on stage with the performers or even being one of the performers um, for a day. If they have, if they have a headset on how cool would it be to walk around in Lin-Manuel Miranda's shoes for a day? How cool would it be to walk yeah. around in Adina Menzel's shoes for a day? How cool would it be to sit in on tech and learn that process? Like I'm thinking of all the theater students, like millions of people around the world who are studying the craft. It's not just about the performers, but learning how the musicians work in the pit. Mm -hmm. How does tech work? How does a lighting, uh, lighting designer create the states for each, each lighting state? The potential, the, the possibilities are, they're enormous. The education outreach is one of the most intriguing things for me because not only will the general public be able to access and appreciate what it is that we do on stage and how much goes into it, but everyone can, can have access to that, which then you have an argument of like, well, no, it's special. You shouldn't be able to have access to that. The performers and the theatrical professionals will always have that. That's never going to be taken away. An in-person experience, as of now, I don't see any way that it can be replicated. So you go see virtual Hamilton from F12 in the middle of Kansas and say, you know what? I really want to go see it. But because you only paid $50 for that ticket, you can come to New York and pay $50 for a seat in F13. And 
actually be there live. So the accessibility is unimaginable. Instead of having to have an entire classroom of students fly across the country or fly from another country, fly from Sydney to come to New York, that is insanely expensive and cost prohibitive for some people. So how do we equalize um, the accessibility? And it's going to take producers stepping up, other companies donating and nonprofits, low budget companies running and and making all of this accessible and then dreamers like us. Do you think the cost you mentioned earlier that the like the hollow lens is three thousand dollars? Do you think like computers and iPhones that, you know, over time the price has decreased that the cost of the virtual stuff it's gonna go down? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. If you're interested, you can look up something called Moore's Law, which predicts the um, the size and power of silicon chips and how they increase in power and computing and processing power, but decrease in size. So it's an exponential graph. So at some point, we're going to reach an insanely powerful, insanely small um, chip. So the, the, that also translates to all technology, augmented reality, virtual reality, and inevitably as things get easier to manufacture, as, as they are more readily available, the price will come down. If you think about the first computers, they were huge and inaccessible. Now we have oh, computers. Took up whole floors of a building. Exactly. Now... <laughs> we have computers in our pockets and people don't think twice about it. We have the ability to buy something for three or $400 that can, can compute insane amounts of data in seconds. Um, If you were to tell some of the original computer scientists or computer engineers, this, they (laughs) would sit and be like, what? Excuse me? Yeah. So, and it's in our lifetime too that that change has happened. It's, you know, I remember our first desktop computer was this huge, heavy, incredibly slow machine. And like you say, now it's, we have vastly superior computers in our pockets with touch screens. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How long did it take for your computer to turn on? And then if you had a power surge, oh my Mm -hmm. goodness, you lost everything. (laughs) (laughs) And now, and that dial up internet, look at the accessibility. So again, (laughs) 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 horrible, horrible sound. Yeah. it absolutely will reduce in cost. And as we get more competitors in the market, um, so sure, Microsoft was one of the first to mass produce a consumer-grade electronic heads-up display. These things have been around for many, many years in military applications. So fighter jet cockpits and fighter jet um helmets, they all have augmented reality on them. A lot of night vision or um other uh, flight tools, they've all been around for a while. It's just the consumer-grade versions of them that don't cost $100,000 that are actually accessible to a middle-class employee or middle-class person. Sure, it's it's an expensive investment, but it's, it's not out of reach of your average person. And again, the more that 
the more technology improves, the better manufacturing improves, the more that costs are reduced, the more accessible it will become. So instead of having to go to movie theaters to see a film or to, instead of going to a, uh, a virtual house, you can now have it in your living room. Look at all the televisions mm-hmm. that we have. We have surround sound, three-dimensional TVs, all of this. It's all becoming more and more and more accessible. I think it will have to be rolled out in a tiered development process, and it's going to have to start with some some uh, big risks and some big investments. And I think that once we get one, everyone's going to want in. Do you think it's going to, you know, going forward, I think post-pandemic, more theaters are definitely going to be filming theater and with iPhones and the new cameras that are available, it's easier than ever to film. So that is going to become, we know the demand is there and I think it's going to become more normalized to film shows for distribution later. Do you think the same could be said for filming shows for VR or AR? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a worthy investment to start doing now because it is very possible. Um, This technology already exists. So just add it now and then you don't have to go back and refilm it later. Yeah, It's something that if it is controlled, then it can be more easily distributed and monetized. Now, instead of having people come in and be allowed to film on their own devices, that's still not something that is ideal in a performing arts world. I see, I see it happen. Bootleg exists. Stuff is going to happen. But if it can be more accessible and then it can be more controlled and better monetized and then it can lower the cost even more (laughs) to allow accessibility. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just to summarize the answer, yes, it will be something that will garner more interest in the future, especially as these devices become more and more accessible and the development of applications, even, even an iPhone right now or any sort of phone you look at a three-dimensional photo. You have to do this thing. So instead of having um, pan the camera, you pan around. the camera around. Same yeah. thing, but instead of having a two-dimensional device, um, you have an augmented reality device. It it's just where the information is going and how it's being distributed. Um, you can capture it in the same way. So if somebody doesn't happen to have an augmented reality or virtual reality headset, they can still view the experience. It's just, you're going to have to pan around with your phone a bit or allow, or watch the two dimensional um, standard film version of it. Before we started recording, you mentioned briefly that you're working on a new project. Are you able to speak about that? Yeah, I, I've just been working with a a small um, circus group called Cirque de Nuit and we are investigating how to bring some of our work into the digital realm. There are a few uh, fairly successful immersive experiences happening right now, and I think people are craving that interaction. So we are just, 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 just in the beginning phases of the messy creation process. It's frustrating, it's messy, Mm -hmm. it's fun, but Overall, it's going to be very rewarding. So we are working on 
what stories do we want to tell? How do we want to tell them? Do we want to film it, film it first, or do we want to perform live? How do we mix the two of these things? Um, how many people do we have on? What platform do we use? So the, uh, accessibility to online video conferencing services has increased dramatically. I remember even when I first started working at, um, at Microsoft, it was okay. We have to have link. We can't even use Skype. Mm -hmm. Skype was kind of a thing. Hmm. And then FaceTime starts picking up and now everybody has zoom. So yeah, the, um, the market competition is really, really interesting and just to see what's mm -hmm. been developed and how many different ways there are to broadcast to a new audience and interact with them. Uh, so are we interacting via text? Are we interacting via a video conference? Are we on Instagram? Are we emailing? Um, all of these things that we're taking into consideration. But I can't really say much more now because we, we're still in the middle of the messy creation of it. Very exciting. I, I can't wait to hear more about it. And please keep us posted. I will definitely share it when, when something becomes available. Yeah, I hope I'm not getting in trouble for <laughs> for talking about it. <laughs> I don't um, think you've given away too many no, just uh, the fact that we're pertinent details. We're thinking about it and yeah, it was everybody else Very right cool. now. Um, lots and lots of just creatives are going to create and come up with creative solutions. That's just the nature of our curiosity is how do we mm -hmm. come up with a new way to play with this? Like, I want to play with that. And we're going to innovate it's... and respond to the world around us. And right now, you know, more than ever, we have to respond to the world around us with creativity. Yes. Yeah. And to me, that's where art and science intersect is that they're both ex explorations of the curiosities of the world. It's just different techniques in order to do so. So there's a lot more in common than many people might think. So to wrap up, I have a few quick questions for sure. you. We're going to fly through them because <laughs> I know we're getting a little short on time. <laughs> I usually ask people what their favorite musical is, but I want to ask you what your favorite VR or AR experience is. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. That's really hard. So... I have to confess, I'm a terrible, terrible, terrible technologist. I am a late adopter. So what I, what I mean by that is I didn't get an iPhone until eight years after the first iPhone came out. Um, yeah, I like <laughs> to evolve before I invest in it. But um, mm -hmm. there was one experience that I... Um, I just fell in love with it when I was at Oculus. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was a short three or five minute film. Um, there is actually a virtual reality film festival out nowadays. And I will, I'll look that up and I'll send it to you later when I remember what it's called, but it was, I can include it in the link. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. It was, um, I, I can't remember it off the top of my head right now, but it was an absolutely stunning virtual exploration into this girl's, this young girl's, um, reality. I think it was dealing with the loss of her mother and you, mm -hmm. you start in her bedroom and it's, you're, you're in virtual reality. So you're completely occluded and you start falling into this bedroom and then you hit the bed and you sit next to a girl who's drawing in her journal and you start seeing things like horses and 
dragons flying out and then you start flying into the stars and it was just such a powerful, powerful and beautiful piece um, that it really impacted me. That that's probably one of my favorite virtual reality things that I've I've experienced. Um, for augmented reality, there was a really fun game at Microsoft, um, and it was almost like a live action CSI where the way that Hololens works is it maps out your entire room, so it has an infrared camera that then maps out the whole room. So if, if you and I had a HoloLens right now, we would be sitting and having a conversation at my table. You would be sitting in my chair. So the way that it, it ended up working is you were interacting with this detective. The detective would sit, would lean on the table next to you, would get up, walk through your doors. (laughs) That was really, really cool. And for me, that was one of the, the prime examples of how augmented reality is supposed to work because augmented reality can switch back and forth between virtual where all you're doing is playing with digital objects and augmented where you're actually interacting with where the digital object is leaning against your wall and telling you about a crime scene or you see the blood on your floor or you see a piece of evidence and you have to go pick it up and put it in your supply kit. So for folks who, <laughs> who think that uh, virtual reality or augmented reality means the end of interactive theater, think again. Not at all. There are so <laughs> many possibilities. Um, the computing power, the and also think about the artists that they employ a lot. I have a few friends who are um, graphic artists and digital mm-hmm. artists who uh, worked on video games, Halo and uh, they, they have to have, they have to have artists to create this stuff. You can't just have a stick figure and expect it to work. It's ugly. Nobody wants that. Absolutely. So avatar creation is super Artists cool. are vital. Artists are vital. Artists are very, very important. <laughs> this is so wonderful. Lena, thank you so much. Where can we find you online? Ah, yes. You can find me online on my website, which is Lena Wolf with an E. L-E-N-A-W-O-L-F-E dot com. Um, or you can check out my Instagram, which is updated daily with my daily doings and slight shenanigans um, at Merlena19, M-E-R-L-E-N-A-1-9, like mermaid, Lena. So if you want to follow me along there, I will be launching a technology and tutor website at some point this year. But again, everything mm-hmm. has changed. So we don't really know when that's going to happen. <laughs> Well, fingers crossed. This has been such a fascinating conversation. It gets me so excited about the potential of merging technology with theater and the potential for the future about making theater even more accessible in a really exciting way. Yeah, it makes me very excited too. And to see how many of my peers are willing and eager to engage in another aspect of my life that I love dearly, uh, just makes me feel like a valuable contributor to the performing arts. And it makes me very, very excited for the future. Yes. More, more dancers like you, more technologists like you who are artists. We need artists who are scientists and scientists who are artists. It's, it's what's going to make our world a better place. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. My pleasure. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you again, Lena. Filmed Live Musicals is a labor of love, and we'd like to thank everyone who makes it possible. 
Thank you to our patrons Josh Brandon, Mercedes Esteban, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Al Monaco, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, and Beck Twist for your support. If you'd like to support Filmed Life Musicals, please like and review on your podcast app. Find us on Twitter at Musicals on Screen and on Facebook at Filmed Live Musicals. If you'd like to support the site financially, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash musicals on screen. No matter what level you're able to pledge, you'll receive early access to written content and early access to this very podcast. Visit www.filmedlivemusicals.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Again. Bating, bating. <laughs> <laughs>